It's 4.45 a.m. on a Friday in Poland, and a small garrison of soldiers has just awoken, preparing to do their daily chores on a military base on the north coast of the country overlooking the Baltic Sea. It was a quiet post. Many of the soldiers felt lucky to have been stationed in a fort on the coast, much less in the free city of Danzig, which operated autonomously from Germany and Poland, its two neighbors. As the soldiers emerged from their barracks on the brisk September morning, they were startled by a far-off sound of guns across the water. Sharpening their focus, they noticed German warships bearing the Nazi insignia firing on their small fortress. Confused and disoriented, the Poles frantically armed their own guns and fired back at the German ships, not understanding what was going on. As they relayed information back to the headquarters of the Polish military, they received terrifying news. The attack on the Westerplatt garrison was not an isolated incident. German troops were crossing the Polish border on multiple fronts. On the morning of September 1st, 1939, the brave Polish forces faced down a force they knew spelled their doom they stared in the face of the entire German army, led by Adolf Hitler. Ladies, gentlemen, and everyone watching, thanks for joining me today on Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I am Tanner, and as always, I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened. If you've made it this far... You've made it nine episodes into the Conflict of Nations series, and it's insane that we are that far into this. And we're not done yet. We've still got a few more to go. Thanks for joining me. We are officially... Well, at the beginning of this episode, not quite. But by the end of this episode, we will have officially gotten into the meat and potatoes of World War II, the greatest conflict the world has ever seen. And hopefully the greatest conflict the world will ever see. Before we begin, a couple items of uh, business here. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts, or you can do this on Spotify now, and drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. That gets more people involved with the conversations about history. It is the best way you can help this podcast. And if you would like to donate monetarily to the podcast, you can head over to the Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened Anchor.fm page, and there... There's a little button that says support with a little money sign, and if you click on that button, it takes you to a page where you're able to drop a small monthly donation to the podcast where you can keep us, you know, keep us going here. I'm also going to be setting up a smaller donation page which uh, offers one-time donations, so you don't have to donate every single month, and I'm sure that will be uh, a little bit more doable for most of my listeners who are interested in supporting but don't want to commit to a monthly thing. So... With that being said, we've gotten through all of our housekeeping. Let's get on to the episode. Here we go. So, two episodes ago, we covered the rise of fascism in Europe, particularly with Hitler and Mussolini. There were Now, there were fascist movements all over Europe, but Germany and Italy were the two nations where they were the most successful. In the last episode, we covered what was going on in the Far East and the war between Japan and China. Japan's invasion of Manchuria, Japan's invasion of mainland China... Uh, all the messy stuff going on there. 
So Japan and China descended into this grueling war of attrition as the decade grew old and the world watched with intense scrutiny for what Japan would do next. They'd already violated the terms put into place by the League of Nations after World War I, saying that no country could undertake the imperialist ideals that Japan was interested in. But since the conflict was so far away, it didn't feel worth it for anyone from the League of Nations to do really anything about it. Now, as I was writing this episode, I'm going to be totally honest and say that I realized that I don't think I've ever really explained what the League of Nations was. So the League of Nations was the first worldwide intergovernmental organization created after the end of World War I with the sole purpose of maintaining world peace so another world war would never happen again. At its onset in 1920, there were 42 countries who agreed to participate in the League. At its height in 1934, there were 58 members at 16 had joined since the creation of the League, though some would begin to lose faith and withdraw from the League as the Second World War commenced. The League of Nations is often cited as the precursor to the United Nations. So there you go. Other than the international geopolitical equivalent of a slap on the wrist uh, to Japan, the League of Nations really offered no physical resistance to the situation in China, even after the Nanking Massacre. Part of the problem was that both China and Japan were originally part of the League, but Japan had withdrawn in 1933 after the initial invasion of Manchuria. The League was nervous about what kind of authoritarian precedent it would set if the League were to forcibly act against the Japanese aggression, and if it would lead to the dissolution of the League. The other part was that another problem had shown up, and it had to do with, the little, with a little talk that happened between the Japanese Empire and the new dominant party of Germany, the Nazis. So, two episodes ago, we discussed the rise of the Nazi party in Germany, ending up around 1933. So, in 1933, the Nazis formally took power in Germany, becoming the dominant force for all legislative, executive, and judicial power. But there were still other parties in the legislature, and if they all united, and a few Nazis decided to vote against the party, however unlikely that was, it was possible for the rest of the legislature to usurp Nazi rule in terms of voting. Let's jump back over to Central Europe and see what we missed here while we were preoccupied talking about Japan and China. So in November of 1932, Adolf Hitler, leader of the Nazi party, was crowned Chancellor of the German Republic to huge crowds of adoring German nationalist fans. Hitler promoted intense ultra-nationalist and ethno-nationalist ideals, as stated in episode 7. And the Germans who had been deeply demoralized at the end of the Great War, were more than happy to listen to someone who promised restoration of the former glorious German Empire, especially after the years of hunger and suffering due to hyperinflation, as a result of the economic policy instated by the Weimar Republic. They loved him. But Hitler did not yet have the iron grip on Germany he needed to put his grand plans into action. Do you remember how I briefly mentioned Article 48 of the German Constitution, Episode 7? The article that allowed for the complete takeover of the executive branch in the event of an emergency, and the power of the executive branch to suspend all civil liberties in that case? Well, Hitler was about to take a special interest in this article. On a cold night in February of 1933, a fire broke out in the Reichstag. If you remember, this is the equivalent of the Capitol building in the United States where Congress meets. No one was hurt in the fire, but even before the fire was put out, police were certain that it was caused by arson. Hitler was notified and he reached the scene, being informed that the perpetrator had already been caught, 
Turns out it was a young Dutch man, a member of a new communist group who went by the name of Marinus van der Lubbe. And he had definitely set fire to the Reichstag as an act of political extremism in defiance of the Nazis. Unfortunately for Marinus, his act of defiance was the final nail in the coffin for the German free people. News of the event was plastered on newspapers in Germany as a deliberate act of aggression by the German Communist Party, and Hitler invoked the 48th Article of the German Constitution, which suspended all civil liberties of the German people, including habeas corpus, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, the right to free association and public assembly, and the secrecy of the post and telephone. As long as the Nazis would reign in Germany, not a single one of these freedoms would ever be reinstated. Hitler further used the attack as a way to blame the communist factions in Germany for the societal problems, verbally labeling them as, quote, subhuman. With elections only a week away, Hitler knew that he had to jump on this as much as possible, and it paid off. In the next election, the Nazis nabbed 11% more of the vote, jumping from 33% of the seats in the Reichstag to 44%. They then allied themselves with the German People's Party, who came away with 8% of the vote. So 44 plus 8. All in all, the Nazis sat comfortably holding 52% of their seats in the Reichstag. An undisputable majority. The Nazis now, officially, held complete dominion over Germany. It was time to set Hitler's plan into action. Immediately following the election, Hitler called for a legislative vote to give the Nazis extra power by utilizing the Enabling Act, which would give the Nazis the authority to create and pass laws without the Reichstag voting on it. While some members of the legislature opposed this, Hitler made sure that the Nazi paramilitary personnel were surrounding the Reichstag when the vote was taken. Hitler famously said, quote, It is for you, gentlemen of the Reichstag, to decide between peace and war. He promised friendly cooperation, and the act was passed. But in the next year, Hitler would abolish all powers of the German states to pass their own laws and consolidated power in the central government, which the Nazis, remember, have full control over. By July of 1933, he used the Enabling Act to pass a law that made affiliation with any non-Nazi political party strictly illegal. Remember how he promised to play nice? Well... The Reichstag abdicated its diplomatic responsibilities. The building itself would sit empty for the next six years, other than a few sparse meetings for the Nazi party members to vote on party affairs. Things were going swimmingly for Hitler. In 1934, Hitler took his next step in tightening his grip on Germany and committed his first real act of tyranny. At the beginning of 1934, Germany was ruled by two heads of state. Hitler as the Chancellor, and Paul von Hindenburg as President. Both worked together to solidify the dominance of the Nazi Party over the country, but because there were two heads of state, both had to come to a consensus over what direction to take said state before any new executive decisions could be made. Along with that, both the Chancellor and the President had the power to label the other unfit to serve. And remove them from their position, something that could thwart the increasingly dictatorial direction that Hitler was taking. But fortunately for Hitler, Hindenburg was almost completely on his side. However, in 1934, Hindenburg died of lung cancer, 
potentially leaving the position open for someone to fill his spot, and potentially have a different idea of how the government should be run. But Hitler was ahead of the game. The day before Hindenburg's death, Hitler had received word that Hindenburg was going to meet his maker very soon, and preemptively, Hitler quickly enacted a new law that upon the death of the president, all powers of the president would then be vested in the chancellor. Basically, Hitler would inherit all the powers that Hindenburg was holding. The next day, Hindenburg died, and Hitler inherited his power, renaming himself the Führer of all Germany. While this seems sudden and drastic, Hitler knew months before Hindenburg's death that he wasn't going to stick around a whole lot longer, and he had this meticulous plan put together way ahead of time. Hitler always intended to merge the powers of the Chancellor and President upon his friend's death, but knew that some people were not going to be happy about it, particularly in the military. If he didn't have the military on his side, his rise to power could be easily and quickly dismantled by their force of arms. Simply put, Hitler had the brown shirts, that paramilitary group, but the German army was a lot stronger than the paramilitary, and if they decided to have a shooting war, Hitler knew who was going to lose. So before we get to this, like I just said, it's important to understand that the Nazis had control of two separate military groups at this time. First, the Nazis had the brown shirts, the Nazi paramilitary group that sprang up before the Nazis had even seats in the Reichstag. Well, in 1934, the brown shirts were still around, but were not affiliated with the actual German military at the time, creating this fundamental distrust in the military toward Hitler as he rose to power. Hitler knew that he had to earn their trust in some way. So just before Hindenburg's death, he met with senior leaders of the military and promised that if they backed his consolidation of power upon the death of Hindenburg, he would completely abolish the brown shirts and make sure they no longer posed a threat. The military was wary, but agreed, conditional on him keeping his promise. And Hitler kept his promise. Shortly before Hindenburg's death, Hitler ordered the first major purge of his bloody reign, his first real act of tyranny, in an event remembered as the Nacht der Langen Messer, the Night of the Long Knives. Hitler didn't just abolish the brown shirts, he purged them completely. Systematically, he had his military round up as many senior members of the brown shirts as they could get their hands on. At best, they were imprisoned without trial. At worst, they were executed. Along with the brown shirts, Hitler located and executed a number of his political enemies, including the former German chancellor who remained a rival of Hitler and was critical of his ideals. Officially, in three days, 85 leaders of the brown shirts and other political opponents were executed during the Night of the Long Knives. Unofficial estimates are that more than a thousand people were executed, with countless others being imprisoned. The deal was sealed. Hitler had betrayed the paramilitary that had helped him rise to power, and now the military was fully behind Hitler, and the brown shirts were no longer a threat to them. So when Hitler took the role of chancellor and president, not a single one of his military advisors said a word. In a massive ceremony, Hitler took full power over Germany to a jubilant audience of tens of thousands. He abolished the use of the Weimar flag with his black, gold, and red bars and instituted the Nazi flag with red and black intersecting bars and the swastika in the center. 
as the official German flag. He then made all trade unions illegal and nationalized all private industry by making sure all business and corporate entities were headed by Nazi party sympathizers, if not Nazi party officials. Every facet of daily life came under the control of the Nazi party, and anyone who stepped out of line was watched closely and carefully by party members. And then there came the anti-Semitism. In his memoir, Mein Kampf, written in jail in Bavaria, if you remember, Hitler blamed most of the world's problems on the Jewish population. Okay, so most people don't actually know why Hitler hated the Jews so much, but this is why. He believed that a global cabal of Jewish leaders had conspired to overtake all national banks and spur the events that led to the outbreak of World War I as a means to establish themselves as the puppet masters of a world government. Well, other than the Protocols of the Elders of Zion manuscript, which came out of the Russian Empire in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as justification for the Russian pogroms, there is very little evidence to support this claim. But Hitler was willing to stand by it rigidly anyway. In any case, it provided his new German Empire with a common enemy, something he needed in order to get his people behind him. Now remember... Hitler and the Nazis had full control over all legislative, executive, and judicial branches of the government. They had control of everything, so they could pass whatever laws they wanted. So Hitler passed a law first that he called the Law for the Restoration of Professional Civil Service, which effectively removed all teachers, professors, judges, magistrates, and government officials from their professions if they were of Jewish descent, or if their loyalty to the Nazi party was suspect. The only exceptions were if the Jewish worker had been in the position since before 1914, or if they'd had a father or son killed in the First World War. Soon after, the Nazis passed the Law Against the Overcrowding of German Schools, which heavily restricted the number of Jewish students who could be present at any school in Nazi Germany. Later in the year, the Nazi party revoked all accounting licenses from any accountant with Jewish heritage. By the beginning of the following year, Jewish actors were no longer permitted to perform on stage or in movies being premiered in Germany. Many German Jews at this point saw the writing on the wall. By the beginning of 1935, Jehovah's Witnesses and homosexuals were already being shipped off to a new industrial prison complex and work camp that the Nazis had built called Dachau. Other work camps like this were already springing up all over the country, and the Jews living in Germany decided to act before they, too, were sent off to the work camps. Their action resulted in a deal taking place between the Zionists living in Israel and the Nazi regime, called the Havara Agreement. The agreement allowed for German Jews to leave Germany and travel to Palestine, where Jews were gathering to create the nation of Israel, but to do so... Jews were forced to hand over a large portion of their financial assets to the Nazis before departing. While this deal was met with international criticism, around 60,000 Jews took advantage of it and fled to Palestine before things got worse in Germany. However, other ethnic groups did not have the same opportunity. The Nazis specifically targeted the Romani, an ethnic minority of gypsies who had traditionally originated in northern India and migrated to Europe centuries before, along with Afro-Germans, Germans who were of African descent. Through 1934, 35, and 36, things just got worse in Germany for the minorities. As Hitler passed a series of laws that reduced Jews, Africans, Romani, and other minorities to second-class 
citizens. Those who were of an ethnic descent that filled the characteristics of what Hitler and the Nazis considered to be genetically superior were called members of the Aryan race. What was Hitler's Aryan race? First of all, an interesting fact about the term Aryan is that it originally had zero things to do with people of fair skin complexion. The Aryans were first referred to in the Rig Veda, one of the Hindu holy texts, and are the name for an ethnic group that originally came out of Persia and India, later dwelling in modern-day Iran and India. Today, the name Iran literally means land of the Aryans. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the term was hijacked by a number of occultist groups as a means to describe a genetically superior race, namely Helena Blavatsky in Russia, who coined the theory of root races. The idea that a number of higher races had existed before modern-day humans. Hitler learned of this theory and implemented it into his ideology, spreading his new belief that the German people were descended from the highest race, the Aryans. And that is where the term Aryan race comes from, and how Hitler misappropriated it for his reign of terror. Hitler's idea of the Aryan race were people of German descent with fair skin and typically with blonde hair and blue eyes. Other ethnicities, such as Norwegians, Finns, Italians, Japanese, and Hungarians, would eventually be placed uh, by Hitler under his idea of Aryans, though generally these were for political means and not because they fit his actual idea of what an Aryan was. Okay, so we've established the rise of the Nazi party to ultimate power in Germany and Hitler's ethnic superiority complex, leading to the first frightening hints at what was to come in the late 1930s and early 1940s in the country. Let's zoom out for a second and look at the bigger picture to understand what's about to happen. Three major nations are about to become three main characters in this story, and we've talked about each individually. Now these three characters are about to become entwined in an alliance that would bring them all to their doom. First, Nazi Germany, obviously. Second, Fascist Italy under Mussolini. And third, Imperial Japan under Emperor Hirohito. These three nations were each becoming more and more authoritarian and ultranationalistic, and each had their own grand plans for expansion. Italy intended to annex all of East Africa, including Somalia, Sudan, Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia, along with Greece and Albania. Germany had interests in all of Eastern Europe, including most of Western Russia, all of France, and most of Northern Spain, plus Norway and Sweden. Japan was the most ambitious of all, hoping to annex all of Indochina, which is present-day Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand, take all of Indonesia, most or all of China, Australia, Alaska, Mexico, Hawaii, and Chile, while turning India into a puppet state, basically intending to keep going west until they run into another expansionist power. So, almost simultaneously, when Hitler annexed Austria into Nazi Germany and Mussolini invaded Ethiopia to start his territorial expansion, Japan saw this as a major opportunity to make some new friends, as they were ahead of the modern imperial game by almost 10 years. The Soviet Union had been unfriendly to Japan during its expansion, but if Japan allied with Germany and Italy, it would make war with Russia a war of two massive fronts, something very difficult for Russia to fight off. Japan had also become isolated from the League of Nations following its attacks on China, and in 1938, Italy experienced the same isolation due to their invasion of Ethiopia. Between the three of them being condemned on all sides by different nations, maybe there was some benefit in developing a mutual agreement. By 1939, Japan, Germany, and Italy had offered non-aggression pacts 
all around, and the stage was set for the next big standoff. By January of 1939, the world was on edge. Italy had started its violent expansion in hopes of creating a new Roman Empire in 1935 with a brutal invasion of Ethiopia, revenge for the humiliating Italian defeat by the same nation in the late 1800s, and Germany had begun its expansion into the, with the Anschluss, or the annexation of Austria. The war in the east between Japan and China had stagnated, and everyone was watching to see what Japan would do next. Hitler had ramped up his ethnic cleansing techniques and had built numerous camps around the nation where Jews, Romani, Africans, and other ethnic minorities were being sent, never to be heard from again. While there was no outright evidence from the get-go that anything horrifying was going on, the free world knew that something was not right. They just didn't know how to address it without provoking Hitler's temper. Why were they afraid of provoking Hitler? Remember that, the, that World War I had ended only 20 years before this. It was still very fresh in the minds of European citizens, and no one wanted a repeat. But Hitler was already blatantly violating the terms of the Treaty of Versailles by remilitarizing his country and building his military far beyond what the terms of the treaty had allowed. So what did the Western nations do instead of confront Hitler directly? France made a treaty with the Soviet Union, just like Japan had made a treaty with Germany make it a two-front war in any case. France also had made a deal with the United Kingdom that a German war with either nation meant unconditional war with the other, with Germany, Italy, and Japan becoming closer and closer friends, and Britain, France, and the Soviet Union promising to come to the aid of each other in case of war, things were starting to look more and more like they did in the summer of 1914. And then, war broke out in Spain. Flashback to 1936. Spain was in the throes of a political crisis that was on a scale that could mean the end of the nation altogether, and mirrored what China had been experiencing for decades. Spanish nationalists were at stark odds with Spanish Republicans, and the two factions began to militarize in 1936. By 1937, it had devolved into all-out war, and the rest of Europe got real curious when German and Italian takes started showing up on the battlefields of Spain, always on the side of the nationalists. In response, France and the Soviet Union began sending their own troops to the battlefields, under the guise of being foreign volunteers, but always on the side of the Republicans. Everyone started to realize that something very fishy was going on here with Italy and Germany. Spies from France on the front lines had said there were German and Italian troops using new tactics and maneuvers on the field, and the French, British, and Soviets soon realized that the civil war in Spain was being used by the Germans and Italians as a guinea pig testing ground to test the efficacy of their new war machine. And it turns out that new war machine was terrifyingly efficient. By 1938, France, Britain, and the Soviet Union had pulled most of their troops out of the country out of fear of instigating a direct war with Germany, and the Republican army collapsed. In April of 1939, the Nationalists announced their victory, parading down their city streets in German tanks with German and Italian guns. Hitler and Mussolini now had a battle-hardened army, trained in the fields of Spain and Ethiopia. With this, Hitler turned his attention east, targeting the first territory he desired to place under German rule by force. Doing so would put him in the path of the Soviets, so he had one item of business to address before his first direct act of aggression. Make a deal with Joseph Stalin 
leader of the Soviet Union. There was this country between the Soviets and the Germans that had been a pinprick in the side of the Soviets since 1920. Hitler had wanted part of the country and approached Stalin with a deal. If Stalin allowed Hitler to invade this country without viewing it as an act of aggression, Hitler would allow Stalin to invade the country simultaneously from the other side and take whatever territory he could get to annex into the Soviet Union. Germany would get half, and the Soviets would get half, eliminating the country that had humiliated the Soviets in a bloody war in the 1920s. Stalin agreed. Hitler massed his military on the eastern borders of Germany, and on September 1st, 1939, the forces of Nazi Germany, fresh from the fields of Spain, invaded Poland. The date, September 1st, 1939, is the day that most historians consider as the day when the first shots were fired to sound off the onset of a global struggle that would eventually involve men and women from over 150 countries, bring a number of nations to ruin, end the lives of hundreds of millions of people, and be seen for generations after as the great battle that tested the limits of our humanity, the horrors of which would plague those who returned from the front until their deaths. Horrors that now live in our history books, as the last members of the generation who lived it fade into obscurity. World War II had begun. Fortunately for the Nazis, the invasion of Poland had come as a complete surprise to the Poles, as the Nazis had never released a formal declaration of hostilities prior to their armies crossing the Polish border, so their initial foray into combat shocked the Polish nation so deeply that they simply marched into the first few cities they encountered with little to no resistance. Days into the invasion, however, the Poles were finally able to regroup and mount a resistance, which regrouped deeper into the country and set up defensive lines in various major cities, preparing to take on the Germans in full force. By September 17th, the Nazis were steamrolling across Poland toward these major population centers, gearing up for a nasty battle, when suddenly, word reached the Polish forces that 800,000 Red Army soldiers from the Soviet Union were storming across their eastern border. As the Soviets began taking cities on the eastern border and the Nazis closed in from the west, the Polish government knew that the war was lost in its entirety for Poland. By the 1st of October, barely a month since the invasion began, the Polish army was either surrendering or on the run. 420,000 Polish troops would surrender, and 150,000 would escape to Romania, Latvia, Estonia, or Lithuania, most of which would eventually find their way over to France and Britain to fight another day but their nation was lost. Hitler and Stalin tipped their hats at one another and divvied up the nation as Hitler turned his attention to his next target, France. France and Britain had given Hitler an ultimatum upon his invasion of Poland. Cut it out or we'll take you on. Hitler had ignored it. So as the Nazis swept through Poland, Britain and France declared war on Germany. France even sent a few battalions several miles into the western border of Germany, but fearing a brutal reprisal pulled them back after just a few weeks as Poland crumbled. Unbeknownst to the French, the entire German army was actually massed on the eastern front, where Poland was. If France had continued attacking with its whole army, the war would have been over in weeks with Germany defeated. Alas, as fall turned to winter... 
and all offensives were halted as a particularly brutal cold season battered the Franco-German border, any offensive would have to wait until spring. The Soviet Union and Germany turned their attention to other nations in the meantime. Still bitter about their revolutions in the 1920s that we talked about a couple episodes ago, the Soviets demanded that Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania either forfeit their independence or allow Soviet military bases to be established in their respective countries. And the countries agreed, though they would be annexed just a few years later. Stalin demanded a similar pact to be made with Finland, but also demanded some of Finland's territory as a concession. Finland actually refused, and the Soviet Union invaded Finland, expecting a similar victory as they'd had in Poland. Unfortunately for the Soviets, it would not be an easy victory, and though the war only lasted three months, the Soviets would suffer over 350,000 casualties, many of them sick or dead due to the crippling Finnish cold. Finland, on the other hand, suffered a fraction of the casualties, topping out at 70,000 most of them wounded in battle. The Finns would eventually agree to a peace treaty because there were just so many Red Army soldiers they couldn't fight them all off. So they ceded some territory to the Soviets, but they maintained their independence and humiliated Stalin. In southeastern Europe, the Soviet Union was demanding territory from Romania and occupying northern provinces. Germany and Italy were demanding territory in western Romania. Having not forgotten their losses during the Great War, Bulgaria joined the Axis powers and demanded territory from southern Romania. Knowing that their country was about to be carved up like a big national pie, the Romanian people seized power for themselves and a radical fascist group overthrew the present Romanian government, establishing a fascist Romanian state and aligning Romania with Germany and Italy, narrowly avoiding catastrophe. Seeing the new alignment, the Soviets withdrew their military, hoping to avoid conflict with Germany and Italy, at least for the time being. In April of 1940, as the snow finished its thaw, Hitler turned his massive war machine on Denmark and Norway. Denmark surrendered in a matter of hours, and Norway within two months, despite British and French assistance. And on May 10th, 1940, Hitler launched his most audacious plan yet the invasion of virtually all Western Europe. First, he invaded the Low Countries of the Netherlands and Belgium, also taking Luxembourg while he was at it. Luxembourg fell in the first day, the Netherlands by the end of the first week, and Belgium at the end of the second. Having defeated them, he focused the full might of his machine on France. 4.2 million German regular army with 1 million airmen hurtled toward the 3.3 million French regular army waiting with guns hot. Brutal clashes on the French border ensued on the 12th of May around the historic city of Sedan, where the Prussians had beaten Napoleon III at the end of the Franco-Prussian War back in the 1870s. Only three days after the beginning of the battle, French army men were in full retreat, mostly due to the superior German Luftwaffe bombing the shit out of the French on the ground. When Hitler saw the French on the run, he deployed his new favorite tactic, the Blitzkrieg. <laughs> What was Blitzkrieg? Blitzkrieg, meaning lightning war, was a German military tactic utilizing the element of surprise and a massive number of mechanized units. The idea was to bomb an enemy so heavily that they are forced to take shelter and then roll tanks and other mechanized infantry into the bombed out war zone as quickly as possible to knock the enemy off balance and coerce them into a disorganized retreat, continuously advancing as they tried to reestablish new lines of defense. 
In a successful Blitzkrieg, the enemy is never able to regain their composure and stays in full retreat during the entire battle. Unfortunately for France, this would be the case. During the interwar period, Hitler had drilled his military mercilessly and turned them into a terrifyingly efficient fighting force. All units had been trained to work as a single machine. The French, on the other hand, had fortified their border extensively, expecting to fight another war similar to the Great War, but had not practiced the same unified tactics. Once the initial line was broken by the Blitzkrieg in a matter of days, the road to Paris lay open for the taking as the French scrambled to get back on their feet. Desperate, the French begged the British for help, and the British began sending troops across the English Channel to help bolster the panicked French forces, giving them a few days of breathing room, but really, in all reality, doing little to slow the German onslaught. Only days after British boots reached French shores, they were already being evacuated back to Britain, many of them without seeing combat. This is where we see heroic evacuation stories like the one at Dunkirk, but there were more than that. The French army began to hole up in the Alps and prepare for a long, drawn-out battle, but just as they started digging in, the Italians declared war on them, also throwing what remained of the French army off balance again. French resistance in the Alps was heroic and very costly to the Italians, but the odds were heavily weighed against them. On the east border of France, the strong fortifications built to hold back the Germans at any cost were falling one by one. These battles were costly to the Germans, but as much of the French army had already capitulated, these were nothing but the embers of a feeble resistance needing to be snuffed out. While this took place, the Germans began their march on Paris. At this point, much of the French government fled, into, fled the country into Britain to rule in exile. A new pro-German government was instituted by the Nazis, and that government signed an armistice with Hitler. Ironically, that armistice was signed in the same forest where Germany was defeated at the end of the Great War. France was defeated. Barely a month after the first German soldiers crossed the border, France was defeated. Britain was in complete shock. But Hitler wasn't done. He'd planned a full-scale invasion of Britain to capitalize on his success in France, and he set that plan into motion with a large series of bombing raids across all of southern Britain, primarily in London. Something he did not expect, however, was how ferociously the Royal Air Force of Britain would respond. By July of 1941, of the 2,500 aircraft Hitler had commissioned to be sent to bomb Britain, 1,900 of them had been destroyed. Because of this, Hitler's plan to invade Britain never came to fruition as the necessary air support had been crippled. As Winston Churchill said, Never has so much been owed by so many to so few. Frustrated, Hitler turned his attention southward to the Balkan states. Bulgaria and Romania had allied themselves with the Axis, but Greece and Yugoslavia were embroiled in partisan unrest against the rise of fascism in their respective countries. Instead of supporting their fascist movements, Hitler decided to invade their countries outright, sweeping through them in weeks. Italy had been fighting Greece for almost a year with minimal results, so the crushing German invasion humiliated Mussolini. Poland no longer existed. Romania had allied. Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France 
had surrendered. Britain, though still resisting, had been kneecapped, and the English Channel was in a stalemate. Yugoslavia and Greece had now fallen. Spain and Portugal remained neutral. Mainland Europe was under the full control of Italy and Germany. Hitler was finally comfortable massing his army for his most ambitious plan yet. Drawing from his new puppet governments and other allies in Finland, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, and Italy, Hitler amassed an extraordinary number of soldiers on the new German-Soviet border, and on the 22nd of June 1941, launched a huge offensive against the Soviet Union, sending Stalin's armies reeling. Hitler's objective was to decimate Stalin's political power so resolutely that the Soviet Union would never again be a threat to Germany, and as with before, it began very well for the Germans. In an operation called Operation Barbarossa, on the open fields of Ukraine, the Blitzkrieg tactics worked with an efficacy that Hitler could never have dreamed of. And the Soviet troops were hammered with airstrike after airstrike before being forced to retreat to avoid the path of the Germans. German Luftwaffe strafed the Soviets as they retreated, leaving thousands of bodies for the Germans to step over as they advanced. The Soviets tried again and again to rally their forces, but as with France, the Blitzkrieg did not give them time to catch their breath. One by one, Russian cities fell to the Germans, and the Soviet garrisons within them surrendered. In the fall of Kiev alone, the Red Army lost 700,000 soldiers in a massive surrender. After less than four months of fighting, the German army had reached the outskirts of Moscow, and some of the fiercest fighting of the war commenced as Stalin desperately attempted to hold on to his nation's capital. It looked grim for the Allies. In the East, Japan had been hard at work defeating nation after nation on its own, allying with Germany and Italy along some ideological grounds of fascism and imperialism, and attacking French Indochina, expanding further into Cambodia and Burma after the fall of Vietnam. In China, the alliance between the nationalists and the communists was showing signs of breaking down, and Japan renewed its aggression toward the Chinese, capturing more territory. From some captured material, Japan learned that the Americans had been heavily supplying China during its resistance to Japan, and the, the imperial government called for an end to the supply chain. The Americans refused. London had been bombed to hell. Moscow was in flames. Paris was under German jurisdiction. All free nations in the Balkans had fallen. China was in peril. Things did not look good for the Allies in 1941. They desperately needed a miracle. By the end of 1941, Japan was enjoying incredible gains to its empire, but the supply chains were beginning to be stretched thin. After the war broke out, Britain and the United States had instituted sanctions on the Japanese empire in an attempt to slow its expansion, if not halt it altogether. Japan was hoping to invade the Soviet Union, but the sanctions made it impossible, and they couldn't invade the material-rich Philippines because they were under the jurisdiction of the United States. The Pacific was in a deadlock. Something needed to give. So, when the entire Imperial Japanese fleet closed in on a small island port held by the United States, the Japanese held their breath. And on the morning of December 7th, 1941, 353 Japanese aircraft bore down on the island of Hawaii, 
with the intention of crippling the American Pacific Fleet. If successful, it would mean that the U.S. would be delayed for long enough for the Japanese to take over the British territories in the South Pacific and the Philippines without significant American resistance. Simultaneously, Japanese warships headed toward the U.S.-held islands of Wake, Guam, and the Philippines, while also preparing to capture the British territories of Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong. All of this would take place in less than a seven-hour period. The massive operation had the potential to change Japan's fortunes in the war in the best possible way. And it all began at 7.48 a.m. on December 7th. 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Thanks for joining the podcast today, everybody. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I have been Tanner, and I've been talking about stuff that happened. We made it to World War II. We actually made it about halfway through World War II. But it's about to get a whole lot messier. In the next episode, we are covering the second half of the war in its entirety. From the entrance of the United States to the war, through the Russian fight back, through the what goes on in Japan and China, through what goes on in Malaysia, what's going on all over. The, this, this conflict embroils the entire planet, and we're going to cover all of it. I'm so excited to finally be here. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. That gives me the encouragement to keep going, and it gets more people involved with the conversations about history, and that's the absolute best way that you can help this podcast grow. So thank you for listening, and I will catch you next time. <laughs>